everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Laura Conover, the newly elected uh, prosecuting attorney from Pima County. Uh, And we've had her on as a candidate and we've interviewed her shortly after she effectively won. Uh, So welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be back. This is this is my third time, and I'm and I'm I'm. It's my honor to to join you again. So, has it been everything you thought it would be? <laughs> um, well, I will tell you, David, that COVID certainly, um, you know, announced its presence uh, the moment we we landed in office. So we really only had a week of the new administration before we had quite the outbreak in our office. Um, And I I wanna report quickly that so many people were ill and everyone seems to be recovering from their symptoms, thank heavens. Um, But we had to take this, this beautiful old building remote for the first time in its history and it was hard, but I think to be honest, we will reflect back eventually in that the new administration learned so much about the actual functioning and systemic mechanisms of the agency in those two weeks when we were totally remote and and moving boxes of files out of the building to remain operational and delivering signatures to all the courthouses, we we truly learned priceless lessons immediately that, that it could have taken a couple of years to really get a handle on. So baptism by fire, but uh, the building is still standing. Well, that's good. So uh, other than that, what have been the challenges so far? Well, as you and I have talked about before, David, this situation out here in Southern Arizona is truly so unique in that we had this continuous, unbroken 44-year administration here. So whenever an agency has something like that, the, the culture, the philosophies, the very ways of functioning are deeply ingrained. And so it's been an extraordinary observation period for the new administration, many of whom 
you know, we're, we're taught best practices or criminal justice reform in other jurisdictions or in federal court on, under the Obama administration, under Eric Holder. Um, you know, we bring so many different perspectives to the system. And it's been fascinating to watch the unique system that was here in place and where we can start improving um, the best practices and also learning from them, right? Just because it's gone one way for 44 years, you know, there, there, there have been successes. And I think it's been a good mutual learning experience both ways. You, you know, it also means we have some true experts here in-house on how justice needs to be served here locally. So I think we're, we're continuing to try to bring together a meeting of the minds. So I see that uh, on your first official day, you uh, announced that you were dropping cash bail. Well, it, we, we were very careful to use the word reform our cash bail pra practices. Of course, several media articles, you know, used the word end cash bail, which is hard. It's, you know, it happens. And that's a legislative function, right? I'm, I'm trapped with cash bail out here in Arizona. That's, that's legislative. And that is a long-term goal, is to see if we can't get the state to leave cash behind. But while... While I'm stuck with cash, I truly believe there are some serious steps we can take regardless to reform our practices, to reform our way of conducting initial appearances, you know, the initial detention hearing about whether someone is held or released. And so we're already taking major steps to change the way in which we participate as prosecutors in that hearing. And that's an area where I've been really excited to see several talented prosecutors in the office step up and they wanna be a part of that cash bail working group inside my office to, to really address what we're doing in initial appearances. And so far, the bench has, has really been receptive. As we continue on in the following months, we'll see. I hope to keep it receptive. And uh, I see that the other major change uh, you did was um, reducing uh, minor criminal charges against non-citizens. Can you explain what you what you did there and what the thinking was? Yes, absolutely. You know, David, we're a true binational community down here, down on the border. Um, you know, it takes takes less than an hour to just under an hour to reach the border. We're we're a bicultural community, and um, it's a huge part of what makes us a special and beautiful community, I would say. So it's extra incumbent upon our prosecutors to make sure that we understand the immigration consequences of the plea agreements we offer. So I'm very pleased to say that our very first 
office-wide, prosecutor-wide training in January was from a regionally renowned and very well-respected immigration attorney to update us and help us, again, constantly be aware of what can be the unintended consequences of our plea agreements. You know, the first place there is we want to reduce, you know, any surprise on these low level cases where deportation looms in the background. You know, the last thing we want is a prosecutor unintentionally, figuratively speaking, you know, taking part in the signature on a, on a deportation for someone that they were trying to help get into treatment, for example, right? We, so we all need to be rowing the boat in the same direction on that. And I was very pleased with, again, that, that the office was receptive to that so that we're always keeping in mind that we're not here to separate families if, if we can at all avoid that. So other than those two things, have you made any major changes? Well, I would say, um, I would say that we had a, a wrongful conviction clinic here. It, it was new. Um, it was run by um, a really well-respected attorney from inside the office. Uh, and he, he had retired and come back part-time to, to work on that. So one thing that has already begun is that the community knows that we are gonna have a full conviction and sentence integrity unit and that it's already open for business. So the community was really responsive to that. So we're already receiving application packets asking us to look at uh, convictions or sentences in, in the light of day now of 2021. And the person, my chief of that new unit is Jack Chin. And I say that because he, he is one of your professors there at, at UC Davis. Um, and we're, we're very pleased that you have been benefiting for years now from his, his expertise and his fantastic clinical work and work with students there. But originally, before that, he was the head of the criminal law department here in Tucson at the University of Arizona. So I am so eternally grateful to Jack and to UC Davis for working on ways to, to look to see if we can work with clinics at UC Davis and offer students some really exciting cases to work on with Jack from, from out here in this historic change of office and change of administration and this new unit. Um, so that's certainly a very exciting exciting development. So what does that look like? Is he actually out there now or is he still here working over with you guys? He, he, you know, if we've learned anything in COVID, we've learned that we can work together, you know, nationwide or, or worldwide. So he's there with you, but as soon as he gets um, fully vaccinated, we, we will have him out here in Tucson as able, which, which the whole community is very, very excited about. But in the meantime, David, I have to tell you what's interesting is that he, he connected me then to your DA's office. 
to DA Rising and, and Deputy Raven because, you know, again, they are doing things there in Yolo County that just absolutely don't even exist here yet. Um, be, you know, again, because of that 44 year administration, you guys are, are you know, a generation ahead uh, on, on many criminal justice reform uh, platforms and programming and training. And it's, it's, it's been good for me to, to talk to them and other stakeholders in Yolo County uh, about restorative justice, for example, because we, we, we don't, we have nothing statewide. And if we can, if we can build that here in Tucson, it would be a historic first for the state. So um, has there been any pushback uh, against anything that you guys have done so far? I would say most certainly um, in the sense that so much of what we're talking about is new. And I think one thing that I learned most assuredly was that while the community itself was so ready for change and for criminal justice reform, that doesn't mean that the legal system itself had been studying criminal justice reform, right? I mean, the system here focuses on the business of the day and you know, day after day and, and keeping the community safe. You know, no, no one else necessarily, or few few others were were geeking out on national criminal justice reform policies in the way that I that I was. And I would say that the gentleman who ran four years ago, who's now our chief public defender, which is a, which is a huge help. So you you do have some some people um, who've been studying this, uh, you know, for a lifetime. Uh, now it feels like. Um, so I think, David, my, the work cut out for me is, is doing some more training inside about why we're making these necessary changes, why the system needs to be more data-driven and less culture-driven in the way it, the way it has before. Um, have you watched what's happened in other parts of California um, and seen the reaction there? I, I have, I have. And I mean, I think each jurisdiction is going to face these challenges in their own, in their own special way. You know, one thing we can assume is that attorneys and especially litigators, right? They're type A people. Um, they want their ducks in a row. Uh, change is very, very hard for, for these kinds of highly trained professionals. So it's going to be difficult uh, nationwide. Um, I, and then I think management style is also very important. So what I'm trying to do here, again, despite COVID, is to be as extremely accessible as possible um, and transparent 
and making sure that my communications go out internally first and then externally because as a sign of true respect that you know the internal people are you know deserve the first news the first word from me the the other thing i'm very conscious of is that this is a large office you know it's not a da it's a county attorney so it's it's 377 employees you know usually pre covid it's it's over 400 but that's nothing compared to uh, some of the huge jurisdictions where it's hard to be accessible to, you know, 1,200 attorneys. Um, those are challenges that that put me in awe of those DAs who are trying to make really critical, important culture changes, and and it's it's a troop of you know 1,200, 1,300, 1,500 attorneys. I'm in I'm in awe of their efforts. Uh, have you had a lot of pushback though from from your deputies? I would say I would say to be honest, the reception has been excellent among a high number. But what happens is that, like anything, um, the the minority opinion can be extremely vocal and that's and that's okay that's what i'm here for i you know i i love administrating and by that i mean serving attorneys and so every day i try to make their jobs a little easier and then i think that helps get us through the difficult philosophical conversations. So nothing like what's happened in say LA. Fingers crossed, not so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, um, those situations seem like, you know, anytime you push uh, a little further that uh, they could happen though. Um, our chief of police out here at our first meeting back during my transition said something really helpful and I just, I want to uh, give him credit for it because he, uh, Chief Chris Magnus, he came in as an administrator some years ago from California and made a lot of sweeping changes. And he, he said that he lives by the 222 rule which is um, which is that for he rolls out a new policy, a new reform, and for two days it's absolute uh, world World War Three. The sky is falling. We'll never survive. Um, two weeks later, it's we're still very concerned about that policy change, but we we're here to talk to you about a number of other concerns. And two years later, um, no one remembers what what we were doing before the change. Well, I, I, I think it's been a little slower than that in LA, but uh, nevertheless, um, so what is it that you uh, still like to implement in terms of changes? Well, 
well, what I can say is that, um, you know, again, after 44 years, I'm only in week six, I think. So, so we have tremendous goals, um, but, but change like this that we want to make after, after 44 years, you've got to do it with patience. You've got to do it responsibly and meaningfully if, if the changes are going to, to work and last and hold and be, and be healthy. Um, you know, so one of the things is we're, we're trying to move in a data tracking system and we're partnering with uh, ASU's School of Criminology on that um, to simply give us a look at where our actual data has been for the last two years to help us then look at first detention and uh, plea guidelines so that we can develop policies that address the, the needs of the community. Um, and anything else that you're looking for? Well, um, I'll be interested, you know, again, again, data, data is everything. It's so helpful, but I'll be interested to see what we'll be able to do uh, with resources, I would say, in not being uh, a heavy uh, capital punishment driven agency anymore. So that, you know, there, there was a flurry of cases in recent years, and I'm hopeful that we can reallocate those resources during a term of, of not seeking capital punishment. So talk a little bit about that, uh, not seeking capital punishment, uh, what that looks like, uh, what it had been like uh, previously. Well, I would say, you know, Arizona statewide, and it included this county, and by county, I mean, I mean, the county attorney was was in favor of capital punishment. Um, and so it was, it was used, used regularly um, as as a tool. And certainly there are tremendous resources needed in order to regularly uh, prosecute capital cases. So, so my hope is, is that we're really going to see um, an influx of labor hours and resources, you know, and frankly, training dollars, you know, real, real world impacts on simply not seeking the death penalty anymore. Um, and I think it's already affected the kind of the quality of our homicide panel going forward as well. It's, it's, in other words, I think there's some benefit to having the certainty that we're not going to be pursuing capital anymore when, when our, our team is first initially analyzing homicides as they come in. Um, and, and what's happening in Arizona with regard to uh, marijuana? Oh, that's, thank you for mentioning that. Um, so in Arizona, we have citizen-led uh, ballot initiatives. Citizens can gather and, and get a ballot initiative on, on the books and pass law in that way. It's one of, the, one of the interesting parts of our constitution and the way in which we became a state 
which we just celebrated again uh, two days ago on Valentine's Day. We were the 48th to join. And so citizens led the charge and it was Prop 207. They legalized marijuana. It was um, the most successful campaign of the entire election. In other words, uh, it was the highest turnout, the highest yeses statewide. It broke, it broke a, a bunch of records. So on my end of that, there is an expungement provision in there, uh, David. So I have put out an RFP, um, a, a request for proposal uh, for software that would help me data mine cases that should be expunged because I really don't want that benefit of expungement in there to be to be illusory or to be to be hidden um, and just kind of like an unknown lost benefit. I think you need an agency to go after, to make it meaningful, right? To make it meaningful. So we'd like to do it ourselves. And, and I'm excited that, that that could be a really wonderful summer project, you know, including, you know, interns, law students, again, um, going after, you know, all those cases that should be expunged and taking the lead in, in, in putting it forward instead of, instead of expecting our community members to somehow figure out that they qualify and then try to try to find court and file a motion. You know, that's not something we should, that's not a burden we need to be placing on people right now. So it'll be, it'll be great fun to put the burden on ourselves and make it happen. So has uh, marijuana finally been defelonized? Yes, yes, right, it took, took law in November. That's great. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people realize Arizona was the final state in the continental U.S. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, right. somebody we has turned, to do that distinction. Yes, we turned 109 uh, on Valentine's Day. Wow. Um, and, and Arizona was kind of interesting. Uh, after the election, uh, what was that like? Uh, what was it like with all the national spotlight uh, on Arizona? You know, um, it it was an interesting time. You know, it was it was certainly very historic for the state to to go blue at for the for the presidential ticket, and also we had a, a very significant um, U.S. Senate race here and. Um, we now have Senator Mark Kelly uh, actually filling the seat left by Senator John McCain and then officially um, elected. And that's certainly a game changer for the state as well. Um, there's no doubt that the state legislature is still you know, firmly with the Republican Party um, and that, you know, kind of the power center in Phoenix. And so it remains, you know, remains a very complicated balance, but, um, but absolutely a very historic time here. Were things as crazy as they seemed right after the election? Um, you know, probably just commensurate to nationwide, right? Um, and also, unfortunately, we were really surging with COVID. 
So, uh, you know, luckily things stayed um, quiet, pretty quiet in that regard so that we didn't, we didn't have further outbreaks related to that. I've seen that there are a few uh, uh, reforms that are being proposed in the legislature uh, on the criminal justice front. You want to talk about a few of those? Yeah, absolutely. That's been fascinating. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, David, that I, you know, I have no legislative background whatsoever. Um, so it's been fascinating to, to have a place and an opportunity to, to weigh in on, you know, how the bills would actually function as law <laughs> out in, out in the system itself. And yes, there are a number of bills going through, um, and and it's been it's been very satisfying to be able to to take something like a bill to address those who are not competent to stand trial, but but potentially pose a, a significant threat to the community, but cannot be prosecuted because of incompetence, and to be able to go in there and make sure you've got really significant due process and constitutional safeguards and proper representation. And um, so it's been very rewarding to take part in those bills that, that are already well underway. And, um, and then to see what's possible going forward when we can craft our own legislation. It, you know, I started in January and within a week, the legislative session was breaking the record on number of bills going through in Phoenix and was in full swing and my budget was due on day 10. Um, so it has been a little frustrating that my participation has been, has been limited in that sense and that it was already in full swing from the previous administration. But it does give you an idea about what, what will be possible next January, for example. And, and in the lead up to that, like for example, uh, you know, divorcing ourselves from cash someday in, in the cash bail system. You know, you know, having detention be about whether you're an ongoing threat to the community uh, or whether you should be released and having cash and income have nothing to do with that. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. I, I don't know how it's come to be, but I am on the uh, uh, press release list for the uh, uh, legislative Democrats in uh, Arizona. So I, uh, I get these updates. Um, oh, so wow. That's so great. I can actually follow along what's going on. And there's some police reform too, right? There is, there is. Um, and, and that's been really great. There's a, there's a big statewide group here called Mass Lib, standing for Mass Liberation. And, you know, that's very much um, community organized. It's, it's black led and they're doing their own, uh, their own legislative work, which is truly incredible and impressive. And they've got some police stuff going on in there, um, especially to do with uh, the way protests are handled and again, to protect First Amendment rights. 
there's a lot of fascinating things going on. Um, darn, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it happens. It's 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 like a Monday. I mean, you know. It's a Monday it's where I was working all weekend, so uh, I, I have no excuse, and I have my coffee. Um, but but it's all good. Um, oh, uh, that's why I was going to ask you. So um, you know, one one thing I, I think I should point out is that Pima County includes Tucson. Uh, for those right. who don't know. Um, now, I know following uh, a little bit that there have been some high profile uh, police incidents in Phoenix. Have, have there been some police incidents down in Tucson as well? Um, yeah, there there have been uh, in up in Maricopa County where Phoenix is, there has been a tremendous um, amount of angst up there I, it hasn't been as, as profound here as it is there, but it, but it doesn't lessen um, in any way the community concern going forward about, about funding issues, um, about needing to increase co-responder uh, outcomes, and also even moving responses, 911 responses to the medical and behavioral health community. So I, so I think that the, the community drive and community need for that, um, a very appropriate and rational need is just as strong down here as it is in Phoenix. And it's going to continue to be that way until we start developing some serious community work to bind better, to bring, to bring law enforcement and the community back together. It's a very us versus them situation right now, which is not, it's not healthy. It's not good for reporting crime. It's not good for calling for assistance and worrying about what kind of response you're going to get. Those concerns are still very high level on, on the agendas of, of all of my community meetings. So that, you know, this is not, it's not going away. It's going to have to be addressed. And as a prosecutor, um, you know, uh, what is gonna be your approach when one of these cases come before your office? Because unfortunately we know it will at some point. We, we are studying it arduously right now. I am still in favor um, of the independent prosecutor model of an independent expert that could be appointed by the county government, you know, not appointed by me, not chosen by me, and not, not beholden to me, not reporting to me. Um, I still think there's a, there would be a lot of benefit for that kind of model here. But, but we're wanting to study all of the available models, um, you know, before advocating for one particular, one particular role. Um, but it will, it will remain a problem as long as the units that investigate those cases are really deeply embedded with your own office, as they usually are, 
it's, I think that those tensions are gonna stay until we can move to a more neutral, independent model. And, um, you know, this kind of circles back to uh, a question I asked earlier, but in terms of your office staff, I mean, have, has there been turnover in terms of, are they called deputies or what are they called in your office? They, they are, they are deputies. Um, and I would say turnover has been, there have been a couple of departures, but it's, it's probably less than what we have been seeing. We, we have, we have retention issues. That's, that's something that to be tackling. Um, in my of interviews with, with all stakeholders in the system here, the two, the two chief complaints were the paper heavy case management system and salary. Um, and I would just say overall morale. So maybe maybe it is a three-part part, uh, complaint there. We have January as the opportunity to pitch to county government. So we have already proposed uh, moving to a modern uh, electronic case management system, a paperless, a paperless system. But that's that's the long game. It's gonna. It, it's like an 18 month project. If I can, if I can shepherd it through. In the meantime, we're working very hard to see if we can address pay and and morale. Um, I think uh, creating a proposal, and I was surprised to learn that we didn't have one. But creating a proposal to get the staff vaccinated was was a chance for me to fight for them and and hopefully an overall boost in, in morale because they are absolutely community responders. Our victim services division is at scene and they need to be treated uh, in the category appropriately to that. And um, it was a nice opportunity for me to advocate for the really hard work that they do, the really extraordinarily difficult jobs that they perform. All right, so uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, any thoughts? Well, I I look forward to, you know, the sixth and 12 month opportunities, I think, to do big data reviews to see, see if we're making progress on, on our goals, to see if to see if we're going in, in the right direction. And I have hope that we will be living in the after times by then. So, so I would say as a parting thought, it would be great to have you come out here and take a look um, in, the, in the post times and, and to take a look for yourselves and, and maybe bring, bring students to see, see what's going on out here. That, that would be a great hopeful thought. That is actually one of my goals once COVID is done. I actually want to go around the country and and see some of these offices and 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 see what justice looks like. But exactly. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Good. Uh, so 
Thank you for coming on our show. This has been Everyday Injustice. That's Laura Conover. She is the newly elected county attorney and she's in Pima County, which, uh, uh, which includes Tucson and uh, Arizona State. Uh, so uh, uh, thank you for being on our show and uh, we'll call that a wrap. Pleasure all mine, David. Thank you so much. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.